my, my brother Bill, my cousin Ernie, and myself both uh, lead our organization that focuses, as you heard, on cranes. And it's actually great to be able to work with them because we share a lot in common, which usually revolves around outdoor activities. My favorite, which the three of us enjoy, is skiing. I definitely love to ski. It's one of my passions. My brother Bill loves to fish and boat, so we all get to have our chances to go out there, whether it's deep sea or in the rivers, and, uh, and really enjoy fishing. My cousin Ernie, is, uh, he raced motocross for a number of years, and he absolutely loves dirt bikes. So we've all kind of gotten into that a little bit over the years and really enjoy riding. His dad, Ernie Sr., owns a 200-acre farm up in Maine. So you can imagine that that's the ideal place to ride. There's rolling fields that you can make tracks around and just be creative that way. But there's also small winding trails that go up through the mountains. And that's an absolute blast whether you're packing a picnic or just kind of out uh, beating on each other. And, uh, and there's also a nice windy dirt road that enters the farm. So if you just kind of want a speed run, that's the place to do it. A couple of weeks ago, on my way to Grace Chapel for a night service, I got a phone call. And as I answered it, I realized it was Ernie's wife. And it was completely jumbled, so I wasn't really getting the gist of what she was talking about. And she kept trying to make a point that I just... Have you ever had that connection where you just... You know it's something important and you just can't get it? That was one of those, one of those calls. But then I heard the words accident, and that I figured out that Ernie had been in a motorcycle accident up at the farm in Maine. And through the, the jumbled language, she went on to reveal that he had been airlifted to the Maine Medical Center in Portland, Maine. That night, I, when I got back from service, I began calling my family to try and find out what had happened and how severe the accident actually was. And I was reminded of a conversation that I had with my mother early in that day. I woke up early and went to a morning service at a church in Methuen that I often attend in the morning. And after service, my mom asked me, she said, how's Ernie doing? And immediately I thought she was talking about Ernie Sr. because he's had a lot of physical struggles over the last year and struggles with emphysema. So I said, as far as I know, he's, he's still struggling, but he's doing, but he's doing well. And uh, then she went on to ask me, well, how is uh, Ernie Jr. doing? And I said, I just saw him on Friday. This is, of course, before I got the phone call and before she knew anything. I said, I just saw him on Friday, and he seemed to be doing very, very well. Uh, stressed out, obviously. Our business is kind of that way. But short of that, uh, he was doing great. And she went on to explain a dream that she had had. It was a day or two prior. And in her dream, she was pulling away in her car from an area. And one of her relatives on her side, named Janet, ran to the car and stopped her. And she rolled down the window, and Janet said, Did you hear what happened to Ernie? Ernie's gone. Now, if you can imagine you're taking a nap in the middle of the day and you have a dream like that, it shakes you to pray. So, of course, that's exactly what she did. She was shaken and, and prayed and prayed. And that morning when she told me the story, she said, you know, please don't tell them. Obviously, we don't want them thinking that I'm having these tragic dreams about them and we don't want to be promoting that as, you know, that as a message to them. But then as we found out that Ernie, who knows if it was even at that, that exact time, 
was in a severe motorcycle accident, I just realized how God intervenes and loves us enough that he would do that. Two days later, uh, after Ernie was diagnosed with seven fractured vertebrae in his back and in his neck and a bruised lung, uh, they realized that you know, that's just a recovery time. There's nothing more they can do. They'll, uh, they'll send him home. So I had the opportunity to go and visit his house and talk with him about what had happened. And the cousin that I saw just the Friday before, who was energetic and you know, ready to conquer the world, was sitting there in a neck brace and unable to really move, but at that point was beginning to be able to shuffle. So uh, there was definitely some positive signs. But he began to describe to me what had happened and how at the farm he was making, he was probably a uh, half mile from the farmhouse, and making a big loop, a uh, circular loop, that would, you know, he was trying to make it into a track for his motocross. And as he did it, he noticed that there was a rock sitting in the, a little bit of the taller grass, but thought he could continually avoid it. And then on this one final pass, he realized that on this, he couldn't avoid it. And for any of you that drove motorcycles or particularly dirt bikes, he did what all of us would do and tried to wheelie up over it and just kind of skip across it. And as he did that, almost successfully, he realized that in the taller grass was a boulder that obviously was going to be immovable. And he plastered that rock and got launched over the front of the motorcycle. And tears just began to fill his eyes as he described the ensuing events. He said, Mark, when my body hit the ground head first, he said, I didn't even have an opportunity to put my arms out. He said, my head plunged into the ground and my body literally folded. I could see the back of my shoulder, and I knew that if I even did live, I probably would never be able to move again. He said that during that time, though, God had made himself so real that he knew that God was there. He sat in the ground there, unable to move. Because of his bruised lung, he was really struggling, breathing, and just understanding how much God loves him, even right then. The only movement he could make is he ended up landing on gravel and, and shoveled himself a few feet over to the grass that was wet to try and keep cool. And it wouldn't be until 45 minutes later that someone would find him. They went out and searched and uh, eventually realized something was wrong, and they located him. But he sat there for 45 minutes with nothing but the Lord to comfort him. And he said, Mark, I've never felt so close to the Lord in my life. If for the next 45 minutes God was speaking to us, if that was us laying in the ground, what would God say to us? What would his words to us be? His desires for our lives, what would he share about that? And how would it affect us as a fire group? I believe Isaiah's words help to answer that question and shape our vision of what God desires for our lives. I think one of the first things that God desires for our lives is a heart of obedience. And not just a heart of obedience, but to be obedient out of a pure heart. In Isaiah, which we've been studying in our Encounter with God series that you're talking about, we're going to be looking at Isaiah and skipping right around like Isaiah 58. So if you want to turn there and you can, you can read in this light, uh, it'd be great to follow along. In Isaiah 58, it talks about two groups 
of people that are being obedient to the Lord, and they're being obedient in terms of fasting. When God calls them to a fast, they're being obedient. But we see the contrast between the two groups. And in this first group, which begins in Isaiah 58, verse 1, we'll read and, uh, and, and cover this first group. Shout it aloud, do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their rebellion and to the house of Jacob their sins. For day after day they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways, as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me for just decisions and seem eager for God to come near them. Why have, you, why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and exploit your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. So we see a group that is being obedient. They're fasting as the Lord had called them. But where is their heart in that fast? It's self-centered. They're exploiting their, exploiting their workers. And they're not doing it to glorify their Lord. They're doing it to glorify the Lord. They're doing it out of what they can get from the Lord. And we see the results of that fast in the second half of verse 4. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Obedience out of anything other than a pure heart does not summon the Lord to hear, to hear our voice and to admonish and and enjoy our actions. Is, Is this the kind of fast I have chosen? Only a day for a man to humble himself? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying on a sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Just out of the obedience, the action of the fast was not enough. God wanted their hearts. He wanted them to be obedient out of a pure heart. We see a second group in Isaiah, and it's actually God's ideal, what God desires for a fast. And it continues in verse 6. Is this not the kind of fast I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and to untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter, when we see the naked to clothe him, and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? Here the obedience is out of a completely different heart, and it's changing actions, and it's driving them to be a blessing to God and to others. And as we look at the results of that type of obedience, In verse 8, Then your light will break forth like the dawn, and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you, and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call, and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help, and he will say, Here am I. I think that's the key, is here am I. When we're obedient out of a pure heart, and our motives are, are in line with the greatest commandments, to love God with all of our heart, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. When that is our motive, God comes and says, here am I. If we're seeking an encounter with God, certainly this is one of the elements that God would desire of us individually and as a fire group. Let me give you another example. In Matthew chapter 12, it talks about, gives a story of Jesus. And as he's traveling with his disciples. Now, obviously, travel back then was 
quite a bit different than it is today. They didn't have the road system. They walked dusty roads and uh, didn't have the stops. They didn't have the travel packs to bring all of the food that we do today. Although there is some evidence in the early manuscripts that the disciples actually owned a Honda. It says, it's actually true, because it talks about them traveling in one accord. <laughs> My group had told me, I have a small group that I absolutely love, and they had told me, okay, if you're in trouble, bring some signs, and, and just give us a cute laughter. Uh, so I, I should have brought a couple of those. But, uh, but seriously, obviously travel was very different then than it is now. And as they traveled the dusty road, the disciples were unhungered. They became uh, in dire straits. You know, you can just imagine walking the dusty roads from town to town or city to city. And they began passing through a wheat field, and the disciples began picking some of the grains of wheat and harvesting it and eating the heads of the grain for nourishment. And the religious leaders saw the actions of the disciples, and they confronted Jesus on it. They said, why do your disciples do what is unlawful to do on the Sabbath? It was, in fact, Sunday, and God's instructions and Moses' instructions in the law was not to work on the Sabbath day, but yet they were working, they were harvesting. And Jesus goes on to question them. He said, didn't you ever hear the story of David, what David did when he was hungry? How he entered the tabernacle and took the consecrated bread, the bread that was designated for the use of only the high priest. And he ate it to satisfy his needs. And then he challenges them and says, if you had known what this meant, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, then you surely would not have condemned the innocent. Jesus puts it back on them and questions their heart. So we're faced with now, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. But for you that have been following in the book, just recently in Romans, we heard about our instructions to sacrifice. In Romans 12, it says, sacrifice your bodies, Make your, present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to the Lord. So what exactly are we supposed to do with that? In one area, it says that we're to sacrifice, and another area, it says we're not to sacrifice, we're to mercy. I've actually read that scripture you know, long before trying to prepare for this lesson, and really struggled and wrestled with that question, trying to define mercy, trying to define sacrifice, and I kind of got caught up in it. And I realized, even in preparing for this, that it's not the mercy and the sacrifice. We can honor God with our mercies, and we can honor God with our sacrifices. The idea is, where is the heart? When God commands us to sacrifice, are we doing it out of a pure heart? The first group that sacrificed their food in Isaiah, the first group that we talked about in the, in the fast, they were making a sacrifice, and it was totally unpleasing to the Lord. Yet Paul is talking about a group that is sacrificing their bodies, making their bodies a living sacrifice to the Lord, holy and pleasing to him. And that's where the heart of obedience is. I think if God were, if we were laying on that grass tonight, and God were dealing with us, I think that's certainly one of the elements that he would bring up and that Isaiah brings forward is to have obedience out of a pure heart. Another one that Isaiah clearly portrays, along with having obedience out of a pure heart, I I think Isaiah points us to being a group that is different. 
and particularly different in regards to sin. We see in Isaiah 56, beginning in verse 1. Isaiah 56, so just a chapter back, beginning in verse 1. This is what the Lord says. Maintain justice and do what is right. For my salvation is close at hand and my righteousness will soon be revealed. He talks about a righteous God that has righteous requirements for our living. And sin does not fit into that plan. If we're going to have an encounter with God and if we're going to invite God to be the center... You know, they talked about the potting wheel tonight. Part of inviting God to be the center is taking a stance against sin, not because of we want to be, you know, we want to look different or just appear different, but because of the effect it has on our relationship with the Lord. If you look, if you flip over to chapter 59, 59 verse 1, Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear. His motives are not, are not the issue. He desires to save us. But your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. What a tragic event when sin is separating us from our Lord. I believe along with our God's desire for us to be a group that's obedient out of a pure heart, God certainly desires to, for us to be a group and individuals who are different and appear different to the world because of our, uh, our, our stance against sin in our own lives. Another area that is revealed by Isaiah is community. And certainly uh, community, we've talked about that in Grace Chapel in a number of different sermons and in a number of different topics But there's a couple of points in Isaiah that I wanted to bring out, and one in particular, also in Isaiah 56. In Isaiah 56, verse 3, it says, Let no foreigner who has bound himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely exclude me from his people. I think this is a key element to our group. To us as individuals, whether we're in work groups or or wherever we are, but particularly for fire, that the Lord desires that no foreigner, no one that is outside the group that desires to know him be excluded. That is exactly what the Ecuador mission team is, is all about, going out and reaching people for the Lord, letting them know that they're not excluded, that the God that we serve is the God that is offering them eternal life. That is reflected in a lot of different ways, our friendliness towards people that are visiting, our uh, activities that we include people in. But certainly, it's inviting people to share in the knowledge of, of Jesus Christ. I think along with that, invitation to uh, outsiders or foreigners would be a vision. We need to have a vision for what the Lord has in store for us, which is an amazingly exciting vision. I think of Jeremiah 29.11. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope in a future. That's the vision that we need to birth. Uh, and I'm sure it's you know, been birthed here long since I started coming, so I'm not trying to paint that type of picture. But do we have that vision that the Lord's plan is best for us and that he desires amazing things? Even during the difficult times, he is shaping us into his image. Just an amazing vision and an amazing plan. 
So faced with the ideals that Isaiah presents, the obedience out of a pure heart, the people that look different because of our stance against sin, and a group that is inviting in terms of community, what are the challenges we face in trying to establish and create a group like that? I think one of the biggest is the same that the people in Isaiah's day felt, that they're constantly being surrounded and bombarded by a world that doesn't necessarily agree or reflect these ideals. It's constant pressure against us and against Christians and, and uh, against believers to conform, to conform to their ways. And in our lesson, in uh, the Lessons Encounter with God, I think they summarize this very well on page 22. Our ideals are challenged by an alternative lifestyle lived out alongside us. How many alternative lifestyles are we facing every single day when we try and live a life that is honoring to the Lord? There's constant, constant pressure. This constant pressure oftentimes leads to difficult situations for Christians, which I think develops the theme of Isaiah. In Isaiah's day, just like ours, they faced these challenges, and Isaiah came to bring the ideals. But here's the, here's the kind of truth behind the story, is that when we're faced with God's ideals, we also are faced with the fact that we utterly fall short of these ideals. We just cannot attain them on our own. As, as lofty as we get, as much as we apply ourselves and are dedicated to try and be a group like that, we cannot do it on our own. Again, referring to our lessons, and it's actually kind of ironic because it's today's lesson, uh, July 19th, 2007. But the voice of the ideal exposes the sad story of the actual, and here it is, a tale of moral deterioration, helplessness, and real sorrow for sin. How many times have you ever felt like that, that when God has given you an ideal and really burns uh, a passion in your heart, that at the same time you're convicted by realizing that you fall so short of those ideals? You and me all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So what is the answer? Where does, where does, that, where does that leave us and where does it go? Well, certainly Isaiah's prophecy does not end there because the story doesn't end with us. It points to one that is far greater than us, that we can rely on to continue these changes and bring us into a true encounter with the Lord. In, uh, in Isaiah's encounter, it's a revelation. Isaiah was a prophet that pointed to Jesus. And Jesus becomes the answer when we're in that crisis. When we look up and say, Lord, we understand your ideals. But time and time and time again, as I've tried to live up to them, I find myself here. Well, the story of Isaiah introduces Jesus into that frustrating situation. If we look at Isaiah 60, here's the introduction. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. See, darkness covers the earth and thick darkness over the peoples. 
But the Lord rises upon you, and his glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Are they talking about us? Kings coming to the brightness of our dawn? Are we really going to be that type of people that, that, that the world sees and sees a difference in? It comes from Jesus. In chapter 61, it gives our mission statement for Jesus. It gives Jesus' mission statement, the reason that this prophecy was going to be fulfilled and the reason he would come to the earth. In chapter 61, verse 1, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, and provide for those who grieve in Zion. What are they grieving over? It's like the, be- it's like the uh, Sermon on the Mountain, the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. We grieve because we realize that we can't make it to that ideal. To comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion. To bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes. The oil of gladness instead of mourning. And a garment of praise instead of a spirit of, des- of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the day of his splendor. Me, an oak of righteousness? When I think about that, I think maybe more of a pine tree of righteousness, or maybe a birch or a maple, but an oak of righteousness, an amazingly tall tree that's able to support incredible weights, where the roots run wide and run deep, and it's not easily shaken. This is what the Lord is telling us, that we will be through him. It's the Lord that will make the difference. It's Jesus in our lives that will make the difference in this group that draws people in, that changes people's lives, and allows us to live out that ideal that Isaiah is talking about, the obedience out of a pure heart, the group that looks different in the eyes of the world because of our uh, our shunning of sin, and a group that is inviting, that values community. It stems from an encounter with God. The Encounter with God series that is happening is designed to bring three things about, and I think is amazing at bringing us into this vision for what the Lord has, and not because of the vast knowledge that it's going to impart on all of us, but because of its purpose. It's designed to help us to build an encounter with God, that encounter that changes our lives. It's intended to build discipline in our Scripture reading so that our daily Scripture reading we're taking in, instead of being bombarded by the world, we're seeing the Lord's standards over and over and his love for us and his empowerment of us. It also encourages us to pray, not only... Uh, for ourselves, but to pray for each other. Just imagine if this group, just right here tonight, took the next 60 days, applied ourselves to this, and were praying for each other continuously for 60 days, the amazing things that would happen. And the last thing that obviously it fosters is community. When we come together and we can be so amazingly blessed by a praise and worship team that just blesses me every single time I come here. I absolutely love to come and enjoy the praise and worship here. I really, I really do. If we just came and praised and worshiped and left, I would be absolutely thrilled. I mean, I enjoy the rest of it too, 
but I lift it up every single time on a Thursday night. I mean, so many times I have come here just struggling after a tough day at work, and on my own I would not be able to overcome all of the thoughts that are racing in my mind. And yet when you guys get up there, it's like I can release everything and say, you know what, Lord, I'm here for you. You are the priority in my life, and I want to praise and worship you. So I encourage us that over the next remaining time that we all get into the encounter with God. And I pray that if it was us laying in that grassy field for 45 minutes and the Lord was continually working in our lives, that it would have such an impact that we would realize that, you know what, nothing else matters. Invite the worship team to come back up and lead us in.